morning, everyone. My name is Pastor Scott. Um, I, uh, I'm going to try. This is the second time I've done this. I shouldn't be so emotional. And try not to be emotional. I'm emotional this morning uh, because it's a great privilege to have the opportunity to preach on unity of the body today. Uh, all of our friends gathered in a cabin in California over the weekend. They're still there. Heather and I flew home late last night at the last flight. Uh, to drive, to be home at midnight, so that I could be here this morning with you, because I wouldn't miss it. The opportunity to teach about the essentials of our faith in unity and liberty and charity. And look forward to the next 40 minutes unpacking what the scriptures have to teach us about building up the body of Christ. We pray with me now? Father, thank you so much for the gift of Bethany and the influence that the church has had in the city for 100 years. We thank you for what you've done in the church for 2,000 years and your ability to hold us together on that which we align over, which is you, Father, and your Son, and your Spirit, and the fact that we are saved by your grace. In your great and holy name, we pray. Amen. Today's message is called The Essentials, and Essentials Unity and Liberty and Charity. And uh, I would love to sit over a cup of coffee and hear what brings you here this morning. We have people in this room that have called Bethany home for decades. And that way I'm, I'm, I'm honored to even get to speak some about what Bethany means. I really should have some of you speaking. We have others that have been coming to Bethany for weeks or months. And no matter how long you've been here, uh, you have a story. And I'd love to hear it. My story is this. In the winter of 2003, my wife and I came to Seattle and we needed a church. We were uh, believers, been married about five years at that time, but we needed a place where we could just belong and meet people and hear the word preached and worship. And I wasn't, I wasn't in ministry. We were just looking for church. And if you're, if you're new this morning, can I just tell you, thank you for being here. Because if you've visited churches and have tried to find a home, it's, it's awkward and difficult. And so thank you so much for just being with us this morning. We pray that you have a, a great experience. Uh, for us, in 2003, we, we went to this little community church on the north side of Green Lake uh, and... Uh, Bethany Community Church. Uh, it was an old building. The pastor stood up there in, or in you know, no-name fleece and flip-flops, and his name was Richard Dahlstrom. And he started to teach from the Bible. And he started to teach about, about the stuff that we needed to hear about, about from Scripture, about the place of Christ in our lives, and about not putting on a veneer of superficiality, but actually being transformed by God's grace. We're saved by grace and yet becoming all that God has for us. And, and as we enter into the chapel, that, that sign you just saw, that, that sign, it, it hung over the doorway. I mean, many of you were there. Like, you couldn't, you couldn't go into worship without coming under the sign. And at a level, it served almost like a coat check. Like, you know, whatever, whatever your non-essentials are, whatever, you know, whatever baggage you bring with you this morning, whatever hurts and heartaches, you know, just kind of check it here. And as we're going to go into this room, we're going to worship God together. And you might miss the sign once or twice, but in time, if you've been to Bethany at all, you would see the sign, you recognize that these, this is the core ethos of this community. In essentials, unity. In non-essentials, liberty. In all things, Charity. And the fun thing for me, Bethany has been my church. This isn't my job. This is my church. Richard's not my boss. He is, but he's also my pastor. God did a surprising work calling me to start Bethany North with you all five years ago. God continues to do a surprising work. 
But this, this motto that's so central to Bethany, which exists in our bylaws, which kind of is how long-time Bethany people say, well, this, is what, this is what we align over, we've never really spoken about. It. So it's kind of fun today to kind of get to unpack what it looks like to talk about an essentials unity and non-essentials liberty and all things charity. The statement, some kind of credit to Augustine, and it wasn't. It was, it was a theologian in the, in the 17th century by the name of Rupertus Meldinius. And he wrote the phrase uh, that doesn't even have an official name, but this phrase in Essentials, uh, written by Maldonius during the bloody 17th century war called the Thirty Years' War. Real war in Europe, uh, around property lines and countries were involved, but some of the major reasons they were fighting is for theological differences. And they were killing each other, and they were killing their neighbors around how they interpreted Scripture. Like, and Maldonius said, this is, this is crazy, we need to keep the main thing the main thing and find unity around what we agree upon so that the world will know us not by what we disagree upon, but what we agree upon. Because we're the army of God, right? But we're the only army in the world that's fond of shooting our own soldiers, correct? I mean, where, what other army trains up people to do that? We do that quite often. And so today, as we're going to open the scriptures, we're going to start with Christ, the author and the perfecter of our faith. We're going to look at a number of Paul's letters. We're going to, we're going to be reminded of the call to unity. It's not an add-on, a little a plus at the end of, you know, 10 spiritual fruits in Galatians that you can never quite get in order anyway. No, no. The call to unity is the essence of the gospel message. And so, in essentials unity, in non-essentials liberty, in all things charity, we're going to look at these three statements taken together and hope that they create a path for embodying us to be people of grace and truth as we, as we follow Jesus in our lives. So let's look at this first, this first clause of the, of the phrase. What does in essentials unity really mean? We need to start with Jesus for this. If you're looking for good reading this week, look at the Gospel of John. And at the end of the Gospel of John, 20% of the whole book happens between 13, 14, 15, 16, 17 of John. And it's just red letters. It's like, what does Jesus say? And I'm, I've said this before, I'm kind of a fan of chronology because as I get older, like things get more important, right? You kind of can realize some of the essence of things. Like, even this birthday party this week, there's this spirit of, uh, of reflection with a bunch of my friends because one of my buddies, he's hitting this landmark birthday and there was just a lot of sitting around and talking because we're, we're getting older and we want our lives to count. What do we really believe about these things? And so Jesus, in the chronology of his ministry here at the very end, he's gathered his best friends and he, he gathers them to comfort them. And as he gathers them, before he, before he lays out this discourse, he gets down on a knee. Because before he tells them about what he wants them to hear, he's got to show them. The posture of the believer, is it matters. More than the stuff that we say, certainly more than the stuff we think about. The posture we take as believers that we model a posture of service and humility. I'm not very good at this. I confess to you, I'm not very good at this. An argument at home with my wife, I'm not the first to get down on a knee. With my children, with my friends, speak the truth in love, sure. But our author, our perfecter of our faith showed his, his best friends that before he was going to tell them about unity, he wanted to show them to really be be humble. And then he says this, John 13, 34, 35, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, even as I've loved you, that you also love one another. By this, men will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. That's interesting. A number of different reasons, but, you know, is that really a new message? 
These men have been with Jesus for three years. They've heard everything. They've seen every miracle. Three of them were witnesses to the transfiguration, seeing God himself. They've seen it all. And yet something here, Jesus understands, even at the very last meal, he says, this is going to blow your mind. How you love one another will actually reflect what you believe about me. And the, he gets it. He spent three years discipling these knuckleheads, right? He spent three years, you know, kind of mediating their arguments for their own greatness, their own position in the afterlife, all the stuff that we're all prone to as well. We're all, at least for me, I'm a position seeker, or my notoriety, or, or my opinions. We all want it. We want to have that esteem. Jesus understands that about us enough to say, this is a new commandment. How you love one another will actually be a witness to how you love me. One of my Bible teachers in college, a man named Dale Bruner, he says this about, about this section of scripture. He says, the mutually lived out heart love of Christians for one another will be the single greatest missionary force in the world. That's amazing. I love missionary force. I love us doing stuff. I love us taking a strip club and making a coffee shop. I love serving a couple hundred high school kids every Monday. I love Tuesday serving breakfast out of the junction to heroin patients and, and that becoming a Bible study. In front. Like, I love that. Like, let's do stuff. But this passage affirms that it's actually how we love one another that's going to be our greatest witness to Christ in the world. That's amazing. And it's not because of our goodness or our desire to coexist or to make people feel warm and fuzzy. No, we, we do everything out of response of revelation of Christ. First John, we love, why? Because of him. Because he first loved us. And so it's a new teaching, it's contradictory, it's challenging, but in the, the posture of believers is, is that, that our, our unity matters. And Jesus later says this in 17, he, he has this whole discourse in the upper room, 13, 14, 15, 16, 17, and then 17, he goes out to pray. And here, this is his final prayer. And what does Jesus pray about at the end? Is he trying to you know, get out of it? Is he, is he frustrated? His final prayer, verse 13 of chapter 17 of John still, Jesus is saying this, now, Father, I come to you, and these things I speak in the world so that you may have my joy made full in them. He's, he's not praying for himself. He's praying for us. I've given them your word, God. This continues to be Jesus. And the world has hated them because they're not of the world, even as I'm not of the world. I do not ask you to take them out of the world, but to keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I'm not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is the truth. Verse 18, if you sent me into the world, I've also sent them. And then this is the good stuff. Verse 20 and 21, I do not ask on behalf of these alone, but for those who believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, even as you, Father, are me and I in you, that they may be in us, so that the world may believe that you sent me. At the end, if you have your Bibles, at the end of verse 21, that, that clause kind of, it gives meaning to all these preceding verses, so that the world may believe you sent me. What's he talking about? It's not, our, it's not our theology here. Here what Jesus is saying is he's praying to God. It's not our doctrine. It's not our apologetic. It's not our mission. It's our unity. As we are in community and unity together, the world will see that Jesus sent us. That's amazing. When they see unity, they will believe that Jesus was sent. And they see unity in the body of Christ. And we don't do this perfectly but this church, Bethany, for 100 years has worked really hard to come together over that which gives our life 
unity in the stuff that we believe that we might be a community known for what we love instead of for what we're against. It's the worst platform in the world to rail against that which we hate. But when we're, when we're aligned over that which we love and Christ crucified, we just we keep beating that drum, and then we've got a hope of, of finding unity one with another. That's why next weekend you heard the announcement. It's going to be different. It's going to be, let's face it, kind of chaotic, but hopefully really beautiful. We're going to, we're going to come out of here because the church is never meant to be rows and you know, stages and all this. We're going to be gathered around tables and do breakfast together, hopefully get to know people around us. And then we are going to preach the word and sing songs and, and there'll be 300 kids running around. So it's going to be wonderful. I hope you're here next week. Uh, but all around this ethos of like, what does it look like for us to really have unity with one another? Paul says this in a number of letters. I'm just going to highlight a few. Here's what he says to the church in Galatia. There's neither Jew nor Greek. There's neither slave nor free man. There's neither male nor female. You are all one in Christ Jesus. And the crazy thing is they would have been like, no, we're not. Like that church, decades after Christ's ascension, they were free in Greek. They were male and female. He wasn't writing this because there was only one group there. No, this would have been actually who was in the room. And Paul is saying, more than how you self-identify, more than your gender, more than your sexuality, more than your ethnicity, more than your political belief, more than your socioeconomic status, more than all of that is what we agree on, that we find commonality in Christ Jesus. And in that way, we have unity. He later says in Philippians 2, which is a book about bringing unity into a fracturing church. Philippians 2, 1 through 3. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, like if anything's actually happening in your faith, is this, is this really happening? Is it really taking up residence? Are you really being transformed by the Word of God in your life? Are you really, like, we're not talking about Sunday attendance. We're not talking about what happened at youth camp 20 years ago. Like, is this real in your life right now? Is it real? Well, then what? Then complete my joy, says Paul, by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord of one mind, do nothing from selfish ambition. In humility, count others more significant than yourself. A posture matters. In humility, consider others better than yourself. Are we a community willing to take the knees sometime and serve people around us and hear from them and find unity in that which we agree upon? It's our call. But it's always been difficult. Later in Philippians, I don't know if you've seen this, Philippians 2, this kind of, Paul calls out these two women. Says you, Euodia and Syntyche, two women. He says, tell them whoever's the the receiver of the letter. He says, tell them to find harmony. Tell them to knock it off. Tell them to to stop fighting and find harmony. Where he says, tell them to find harmony in the Lord. Our unity is not based out of our our humanity or of our our greater Western Washington ideals or any of our sensibilities. It's all about response to what Jesus is doing in us and through us. There was this missiologist in the 70s, a guy named Paul Hebert, that kind of came up with this new way of thinking about our, our faith. And he said, instead of a bounded set theology, maybe we need a centered set theology. Let me explain the difference as an image comes behind me. A bounded set theology is that we have really strong boundaries. We have really strong fences. And as long as those really strong fences exist, then everybody who believes the same thing is welcome to the club. Do we all agree on every piece of scripture? Do we all, all act the same, vote the same, look the same? Then if that exists, then, we, then we've got our fences aligned. Come on in. 
And Hebert in the 70s, a missiologist trying to proclaim Christ in culture, said, you know, it's, it's got to change. It's not the gospel message. We need, a, we need a centered set theology aligned first and foremost around Christ and that which we agree upon. And if we keep preaching Christ as a church, we keep finding unity in the, in the, in the bulk of the gospel message, then, then there's, yeah, there's going to be issues at the fringes, but we're going to spend our life exploring the heart of our faith. Bounded sets versus centered sets. Could we be a, a centered set church? More focused for the interior than the fence line. Some of you know that I ran this fishing business in Canada. And it's on 40 acres. And growing up, for about 10 years, we had cows. And that's a different sermon. My, my hatred for all things cattle that emerged during those years. But my job when I was a kid was to fix the fence lines. And our cows were always getting out. It was so annoying. I mean, they'd get out and they'd run down. We're like, we have dogs. And we're chasing them and chasing them back. They're not the smartest of animals. I hate to break it to you. And, and so we're just, that's my job. Just walk in the fence line. And we didn't tear them all out and build really expensive fences. We didn't really have any money to do that. So we just kept fixing fence lines. We kept taking old pieces of wood and adding them. And, oh, I think they got out here and kind of build some more branches over it and, and kind of repairing fence lines all the time, all the time, all the time. And finally, someone asked the question, have you ever thought that maybe they're missing something? Like, why, do they, why, are, they, why are your cattle constantly trying to get out? Is something wrong with their diet? Are they deficient? And, and we're like, hadn't thought about that. We were so busy fixing the fence lines, we weren't really actually thinking about meeting the needs of the animal. So you should try a salt lick. Like, what's that? Like, what's a salt lick? It's not that. No, that's not a salt lick. No, a salt lick, like this, thank you. A salt lick is a, is a sodium block. So in the center of the field, the cattle that are they're sodium deficient gather around. We got a salt block, friends. We put it in the middle. And the cattle didn't want to run away anymore. What's the point? The point is, could this church, if I could be so crass, be a salt lick kind of church. Focus on the essence of things at the center of the gospel message and keep preaching Christ crucified and the grace of Jesus in our lives, changing us, transforming us. And, and yeah, yes, there's fence lines. Yes, there's places that are out of bounds. It's not, it's not saying we're not going to talk about that. We're going to talk about that in just a minute. It's just saying in the, in making the main thing the main thing. As we open the scriptures, we continue to preach Christ, that we would be a salt lick community. An essentials unity. But then, we're really known for what we love and not what we hate. At what point are the non-essentials, how do we work that out? The second point of our outline, in non-essentials, liberty. How does that really work? First, just a, a note. When we say non-essentials, we don't mean non-important. We don't, we don't mean that as you interpret Scripture differently, it's not important. It, it, it is tremendously important because each one of us, the Spirit's been given to us. We open God's Word. We read God's Word. We're looking for revelation. We, you know, we hear Christ crucified. We, we want to live in that. I'm, I'm complete in Christ because of Jesus in me, but I'm, I'm becoming complete in Christ because there's still pieces of the old me that need to die as I live into the fullness of, of Christ in, in me. All of us are on this journey together. So what does that look like? That's hard when our jobs and our relationships and the way we think and the stuff we do. And, and, and what does that look like that in, in non-essentials liberty? From the beginning, the church has had non-essential arguments. If you look at the book of Romans, look at Romans 14 and 15 this week. Two really great chapters about when we disagree over non-essential arguments. And the church in Rome, some decades after Christ ascended, they, the people would be worshiping them and say, I actually saw him. 
I actually touched him. I saw him. I mean, the church in Rome, you know, Paul's preaching there, but even there, disagreements about what is essential started. Romans 14, diet. Some Christian factions said the only way to really worship God is to be a vegetarian. So you're not tempted by the meat that you eat. And others like, no, you have to have meat. It's not about the diet. They were arguing. They're also arguing about what days of the week were holy. And in Romans 14, 5, these, the arguments are tricky. And it's easy to look back chronologically and say, oh, how silly. I mean, really? Vegetarians? I mean, yeah, they could love Jesus. They're missing bacon, but we still love them. And I'm being silly because I could stand to be a little bit more like a vegetarian, right? And, and, but we can look back and say, oh, that's silly. Shouldn't they know that's not a core unity thing? That's a non-essential. You can be vegetarian or non-vegetarian and both worship Christ. But every decade has the non-essential thing that's blowing up churches, blowing up churches. I mean, just this week, a major church in the world faction, you know, and, and separating. In, the in 1900, there's about 1,600 denominations worldwide. And today, it's tricky because there's denominations and organizations of denominations. But most, most scholars say now there's about 40,000 denominations. 100 years from 1,600, mostly over non-essential stuff. Most communities breaking fellowship, not because they don't believe Jesus died and rose again, but because of stuff like meat and days of the week and, and when baptism happens and, and all this stuff. And so Paul teaches that the church needs to maintain unity and, and yet also speak into the difficult places of, of when we need to find commonalities. And what does liberty look like? Paul wrote to the church in 1 Corinthians. He said, you need to stop suing each other. You're literally one family. And so to tell people, mostly Gentiles, but there would have been some Jews in the church in Corinth, Jews and Gentiles, that they have the same bloodline, I mean, that, and that's as, as confrontational as any kind of, uh, of distinction we have between different people of different groups in our, in our space, in our lives. But Paul tells them, you belong to one in Christ Jesus. But what is liberty? It's, it's not permissiveness. Because even after Paul says this, he says in 1 Corinthians 8.13, if what you eat causes brothers to stumble, do not eat meat. The diet's not the thing. It's Christ. It's the stuff we align on. And so if you're pursuing behavior that's outside the fence posts, that's, that's wrecking your Christian witness, that's, that's not liberty. That's just sin. I mean, we, it's pretty clear through Scripture that, you know, in a clear heart that we should be seeking Christ in such a way that, that the fruit of the Spirit is goodness and, and, and pursuing Jesus more clearly. Galatians 5.20, the fruit of the Spirit means our flesh dies and we become more like Christ. And so then we get to in ourselves and in others, we, we call out lust and gossip and slander and greed and all the sins that just easily entangle our hearts. The non-essential liberty does not mean does not mean permissiveness. And we're still calling into account when our lives are outside the fence post of Christ. But then in Romans 15, when we read it this week, it's tricky. Paul says this. He says, you know, don't be divided. Don't be divided on the non-essential things. Don't do it. He says, be a, in, in Romans 15, he says, be of the same mind so with one accord you can with one voice praise Jesus. And so when your behavior and the things you're pursuing are outside of that, that fence line, if the stuff you're doing is not proclaiming Christ, it needs to be called out. And then Paul says this in Romans 15. He says, therefore, in light of what we don't know, accept one another. He's asking the church in Rome, don't break fellowship with one another. 
in the non-essential arguments that are outside of the, the really the, the core ethos of Christ crucified and the other core teaching in the Apostles' Creed. Don't break fellowship with one another. Don't do that. Don't just start a new church. Don't just run to the next place. Keep in fellowship one another. Liberty is not permissiveness. And also liberty is not always comfortable. Uh, this was reflecting this week on Martin Luther King and his legacy. And he wrote this great book, Strength to Love. And he says this. He says in a warning to the church who had stopped around him being salt and light. He says, we preachers have also been tempted by the enticing cult of conformity. Seduced by the success symbols of the world, we have measured our achievements by the size of our parsonage, our churches. We become showmen to please the whims and caprices of the people. We preach comforting sermons and avoid saying anything from our pulpit that might disturb the respectful views of the comfortable members of the congregation. Have we ministers of Christ sacrificed truth on the altar of self-interest and like Pilate yielded our convictions to the demands of the crowd? We have fences. When our behavior is detrimental to the call of Christ in our life. When we're worried about what we're doing and, and what would people see if they saw what was on my phone. Or the way I did my taxes or the stuff that I thought about. And that's, that's behavior that's detrimental to our call of Christ. And so when we say non-essential is liberty, it doesn't mean, yeah, so just, hey, just talk about Jesus and everything else. No, it, it means there's, there's times to, to not be comfortable. And there's times to not be permissive. But we want to be a community that continues to maintain unity over the core things of our faith. Because every generation has their issue. And this church for 100 years has avoided being divided by an issue. In the 50s and 60s, it was Vietnam. And churches needed to be more strong or, you know, to protest. Or, you know, in the 80s, it was abortion. You know, every generation has an issue. And ours isn't any worse than others. There are core issues the church needs to speak into and do it delicately. Do it such a way not to break fellowship and faction and divide. Because the most important thing is that we continue to glorify the heart of our faith. Last summer we took out a bunch of trees of our front yard. And we took, cut out this one tree that looked perfectly fine. It had a condition called the, the rotten heart syndrome. And rotten heart syndrome is a thing that arborists use. It's a real condition that a, that a bacteria, a fungi, gets into a tree, often through a hole in the bark. This is just ripe with metaphor. You know where I'm going with this. Uh, hole in the bark, a fungi takes up residence in a tree and destroys the core heart of a tree. These trees, you get it, they're dangerous. They look sound on the outside. The interior is worthless, is air. This guy's falling these trees and drops this one tree right outside my baby's window. And he cuts down. He's like, wow, it's a good thing you got this one. There's nothing there. It's just the exterior edge. One good blow, one good, you know, this thing could have just fallen right down. Sometimes the church focused on the issues becomes this, the syndrome of the rotten heart. We forget the heart of our faith. And we forget that which brings commonality to us. And we become so polarized by the way we're voting, the way we're thinking, that we, we stop being aligned by a heart. Church, how's your heart this morning? I don't say that in a, in a, a way of conviction. It's just, it's just a question, reflection. Hopefully we're a church that asks good questions. How's your heart? I, I care about your favorite candidate for the election. I care more about your heart. Are you seeing Jesus in your life? Are you confessing sins? Are you growing in your, in your following of him? If that's the first and foremost place you're focusing every day, you're bringing that aroma of Christ into everywhere you go. So take courage. 
speak on issues, but it's all secondary to the core heart of our faith, which is Jesus Christ. So how do we do this third thing? How do we become a church that really has in all things charity? And charity here, it's not, it's not handout or it's not goodwill. No, no, it's, it's actually from the Latin word caritas, which means love. How are we a church that actually loves well? Paul says in Colossians 3.14 that the love from Christ binds everything together in perfect harmony. And that would be nice, right? That would be nice if we just had perfect harmony. It's not realistic. It's challenging. It's difficult. And yet we're called that from the love from Christ, we're supposed to have a love for Christ that includes love for our neighbors. And so it's like, it's really cool what you're doing in Africa, but how's your witness in your home? It's really cool what you're doing at the junction. But if I'm, not, if I'm not taking care of my heart and loving those closest to me well, I, I run the risk of rotten heart, don't I? Before we can do something there, we've got to do something here. And we've got to do something here with the people that we do life with. The brothers and sisters in our church, the people in our families, you know, our roommates, those of us that have kids, our elderly parents. It's, it's very difficult to love well. But how we love is an indicator of what we believe. So we want to be a church that has in all things charity. Because when you look through the Bible, when there's a spirit of commonality and unity and relationship, believers are able to do amazing things. When unity is the mark of the believers. When we have this common ground in our need of one another and our worship of God. I mean, this is Leviticus 9 going all the way back. Moses and Aaron, they came out of the tent of meeting together. And the glory of the Lord appeared to all the people and people were amazed. As Psalm 133.1, Behold, how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. It's like oil on the head. It's like rivers coming down from the mountains. It is life forever. How about Nehemiah 2? Nehemiah says to the, to the scattered church back from Babylon, Nehemiah 2.17, Come, let us rebuild the wall of Jerusalem. They hadn't been able to rebuild the wall of Jerusalem for hundreds of years. And Nehemiah comes in with a plan For unity and people. And in 52 days, in six weeks, they did the unthinkable. And it was all because God drew these men and women to serve and build something together. Because when the Spirit of God moves us to be in unity, we do amazing things. Amazing. And some of you weren't around two years ago. We took on the the Junction Project. The Junction was uh, was a a strip club, sugar strip club. The federal government seized it. The they were doing all sorts of horrible things there. And, and Christians at that time were walking around it and praying for God to do something big in that space. And so we said, hey, let's do this thing together. We wanted a Sunday solution because, you know, wouldn't it be nice if we had a building someday? And God said, you know what? How about you take care of Monday through Saturday and let me take care of Sunday? So we're like, all right, point taken. And so as a church, we started to, to do the junction. And sure, we had a contractor, but it was your work. It, you showed up with high school kids on a Sunday afternoon. It was moms leaving babies at home and showing up to paint. It was indie crowd, the I'm not done yet, over 50 set. Put hundreds of hours in to make that space a place for us to do ministry. Because when we do stuff together, amazing things happen. It's hard but it's the call of our faith. In Acts 2, when the disciples were together in unity, God unleashed the power of the Spirit, and thousands were saved. Because unity, friends, it's not, a, it's not an add-on. At the bottom of some list, we'll never remember. It's the core ethos of our faith. How we love each other well is how we worship our God. 
And so that's why we have this value of trying to connect. And, and there's a connect station out there. There's men out there talking about ping pong. You can just, you know, eye roll with me. Ping pong? Really? Like people are dying across the world and you guys are going to just ping pong. Seems kind of simple, really, right? It's, but it's fellowship. And there's seven other Bible studies that have spawned from men's ministry in the last five years. All from just fellowship. Women, Tuesday morning, studying the Bible. Now Tuesday nights, we've, they've started a, a women's group. 20 women last there on Tuesday night. Amazing. Or connect groups. Men and women meeting in neighborhoods. It, we recognize it's going to be stepping out in faith and everybody's short of time. But unless you're known in relationship with one another, it's really hard to have unity. It was easier when we were Church of 100. Five years ago, 100 people. Five years later, 600 people. What are we going to do? We're going to need to take steps to find unity and commonality with one another. It's been the call of the church from the beginning. This is, Paul, this is what John says in 1 John 4, 12. No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. And I love John's perspective because John, he knew Jesus, didn't he? Like you think about it at, at the foot of the cross, you know, Peter's scattered, other disciples, where the heck are they anyway? But who's there? John's there. John the Beloved. John and Jesus, many people think, are, were best friends. And John knew Jesus. He loved him. He saw him. He cared for him. And because of that relationship, he's writing in First John. He's saying, remember that, that it's more than just forgiveness. That the core of our faith is relationship. And God's love is perfected in us as we love others. It's really important what our church is doing right now. Three partners, Costa Rica, Rwanda, Uganda. I'm very proud of that. When you give to Bethany Community Church, it goes to six campuses and three worldwide partners. Awesome. But if the mark of this community isn't unity and relationship, hollow heart, it starts to rot us. Are we people able to find unity in our commonalities and our non-essentials have liberty and have a spirit of love over the whole thing? And I don't know if your life is littered with stories of things you've done wrong like mine, but I'll just be the open book for you so you can feel better about yourself. But I had so many times in my life, like I wanted to be the speak the truth and love guy. A lot of times that was just, that was just kind of a pseudonym for, for me just kind of ex expelling something that I was believing onto someone else. And I had this really good friend in college. It was after football, it was after our sophomore year, and we're taking pads off and stuff, and we were starting this men's group, and I was kind of the leader of the pack, you know, and, you know, and, and I just called him out. I, I'm sure my intentions were all right, but I just, you know, I made some comment to him, like, you know, it doesn't even really seem like you're, you're that good a friend to the rest of us. Not seeing his family background, not seeing the stuff he was dealing with commuting 30 minutes to school, not seeing him as a human being. I was seeing him from my limited perspective, telling him how he could perform better. And guess what? Speaking the truth and love destroyed that relationship. It fractured the friendship. I didn't walk with him and have, help him say, hey, what, what are you laboring under? Why are you disappearing right now? Like, how can I be a good friend? I just dropped a bomb on him. We at church can find in essentials unity. And non-essentials, the stuff that's really important, but we have liberty Proclaim Christ, and in all the things that the church is doing, are we a church that has charity? That people would look at us and say, these people, these people love well. They love really, really well. That's been the mark of this community for 100 years, and I, I'm, 
I'm unqualified, to be honest. I'm unqualified to be able to speak so definitively about this community because I felt, I felt underqualified to even take the microphone, not because of sin, but just out of humility. I think what this church has been about for 100 years, and I just think, man, I'm just lucky to be a part of it. Because before it was my job, it was just my church. God's done a good thing here. And in the last five years of Bethany North, God's done a good thing, keeping the main thing the main thing, but it's getting harder. It really is. We need to find relationship in one another, find unity in what we agree upon, and a spirit of liberty and charity that covers us all. We pray with me now. Father, thank you so much for moments to open your scriptures and to reflect on the stuff that you want to teach us. And Lord, we pray you would teach us well. Teach us to find unity on that which makes us Christians, the stuff that we really believe and can bank on. And, and on the issues of the day, Lord, we, we recognize the challenging. May we, may we discuss them in relationship. May we share conviction carefully not to break fellowship. May we remain around the table of you, Lord God. Loving brothers and sisters, even the ones that maybe think differently than us, may we love them well to see Christ grow in them as, as Christ is you growing in us. In your great and awesome name we pray, amen. Will you stand and rise with me as we, as we conclude with singing? We're going to start here by once again repeating the Apostles' Creed, the creed that we've just been able to agree upon as a church for hundreds of years, the creed that just kind of makes the main thing the main thing. Will you read this with me now? I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth, I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended to heaven and seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From there he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. As we sing, friends, may we remember we've got a God who's been good to us for a very long time. And though there are differences with people around us, we've got to keep the main thing the main thing. Christ crucified, with hearts turned over to Christ, loving people well, so that Christ would be glorified in this city through, through us, through us. Are you kidding me? Through us. Let's sing together. <laughs>